Tim O'Reilly from O'Reilly Media, and you're listening to the Curious Minds Podcast. From PI Media, this is Curious Minds. I'm Kelly O'Loughlin. And I'm Ran Levy. In this week's episode, The History of File Sharing, Part 2, Kazaa, Grokster, and BitTorrent. In our previous episode, we described the birth of peer-to-peer file-sharing technology. Here's a quick recap. Sean Fanning and Sean Parker were two young entrepreneurs who founded Napster, and were the first to allow millions of internet users to share music files quickly and easily. Napster's huge success was followed by a painful outcome. Within less than two years, the young company had to give in to a series of lawsuits regarding its responsibility for its users' copyright infringement. Record labels and artists like Metallica took the company to court, which led it to being shut down. Napster's disappearance left a void in the world of file sharing. To paraphrase one of Aristotle's most famous quotes, the internet abhors a vacuum. Dozens of young programmers were inspired by Napster's success and began working on technological developments in order to fill the void that Napster left behind. Two of those developers were Justin Frankel and Tom Pepper, two programmers who, much like Napster's founders, were barely out of their teens before making history on the web. Their successful product was none other than the media player Winamp. Winamp had millions of users. This success made Frankel and Pepper celebrities in the world of software developers and allowed them to found a company called Nullsoft, which was soon purchased by the giant American corporation AOL. The two developers were inspired by Napster's meteoric success and followed in its footsteps. In 1999, they decided to develop their own file-sharing software. They planned on distributing the software as open source, meaning available for all, and they called it Nutella, with a silent G as the first letter, a pun referring to the famous hazelnut spread, and to NU, that's G-N-U, the open source movement. It was a recursive acronym. But Frankel and Pepper made one very big mistake. They were talented programmers, no doubt about that, But perhaps due to their young age and lack of experience in handling themselves inside large bureaucratic organizations, or maybe due to a natural rebelliousness instinct, they decided not to tell their new managers at AOL about their new project. In fact, the first time AOL's executives heard of Nutella was on March 14th, 2000, when the first version of the new file-sharing software debuted on Nolsoft's website. In order to appreciate what went through those executives' minds, we should remember that at the time, a series of very well-covered court cases were being held against Napster. Napster was accused of being responsible for the copyright infringement of its users, who'd copied millions of songs from each other on a daily basis. Even Metallica and Dr. Dre joined the record companies and added lawsuits of their own. The media was covering the story day in and day out. So it's no wonder why AOL didn't want to sully its healthy corporate reputation by getting involved in this legal quagmire of file sharing. On top of that, AOL did some business with the record labels, and it made no sense to destabilize those connections in favor of distributing an open source software that had no financial potential. 
So a few hours after Nutella went live, the phone rang at Justin Frankel and Tom Pepper's office. The order was clear. Take Nutella off the website now. But AOL missed the train. Even though Nutella was removed from Northsoft's site within less than a day, a few thousand users had already downloaded the software. In a few months, people had hacked and reverse-engineered it in order to see how it worked. Copies of the original software quickly spread all over the internet, and Nutella's network grew bigger. Rumors about the new software made their way to reporters who started knocking on Nullsoft's door, but Frankel and Pepper were ordered to stay quiet on the matter. The gag order was so strict that around Silicon Valley, rumors began spreading about how AOL was holding Frankel and Pepper under home detention in order to keep them away from the media. That wasn't true, of course. Employees at Nullsoft said they saw Frankel making his way to work as usual. But the rumors and the complete silence demonstrate how, at the beginning of the millennium, file sharing was a sensitive and complicated matter. An explosive interaction between advanced technology, an unclear judicial system, and money. Tons of money. The monetary temptation was the one that attracted two other entrepreneurs, Niklas Zenström from Sweden and Janus Fris from Denmark, to dip their toes in the swamp of file sharing. Since they weren't software programmers themselves, they hired an Estonian company, Blue Moon, to develop a protocol of a new file sharing network called FastTrack and a software called Kazaa. Zenström and Fris planned to sell this technology to European companies as a fast and convenient way to transfer files between the US and Europe. And in order to test their product and see what worked or didn't work, they released a free version of Kazaa. Kazaa launched in March of 2001. Four months later, in July, Napster shut down, and millions of frustrated users found Kazaa, and they found it to be the perfect alternative. Three months later, Kazaa had 1,300,000 users. Now it's the time to say something about the distinction between protocol and software, or implementation in general, which could be confusing. When we spoke about Napster, this distinction wasn't necessary since, practically speaking, there was no great difference between the two. But in the case of Kazaa and FastTrack, this distinction has a lot of significance. Morse code is a great example of the distinction between protocol and its implementation. In Morse code, every letter consists of a defined sequence of short and long bips. The letter A is D-DA, the letter B is DA, D-D-D, and so on. The definition of each sequence is the protocol, a sequence agreed upon by all Morse code users. Therefore, if I invent a new sequence of signals for letters of the alphabet, others won't be able to understand my intention. But the bips themselves could be transmitted in different ways. 
I could build the flashlight that transmits Morse code by flashing light signals. I could build the telegraph that would transmit the signals as electric pulses, or even create small and large clouds of smoke over a bonfire. In other words, there are many ways a protocol can be implemented. FastTrack was the protocol that defined the language, so to speak, that two computers would use in order to communicate and share files. And Kazaa was the software that implemented the language, just as a telegraph implements a Morse code. It's important to remember that the same way in which a telegraph could be replaced with a flashlight in order to use Morse code, Kazaa could have been replaced with other software that would implement the FastTrack protocol. And in fact, that is what exactly happened. Dozens of other software programs, all implementing FastTrack protocol, appeared within relatively short time. eDonkey, LimeWire, BearShare, Klight, iMesh, and more. This abundance of software allowed each user to find the software that suited them the most, and this was the most significant advantage of FastTrack over Napster. Furthermore, it had another advantage over the previous generation of file sharing. FastTrack allowed sharing not only MP3 files, but also the files, including movies and software. It was clear to everyone that with such success, it was just a matter of time until the record labels and movie studios would drag FastTrack to court and try to take the technology down, just like they did to Napster. In 2005, 28 record labels filed a lawsuit against the distributors of a software named Grokster, a software that implemented the FastTrack protocol. Even though Grokster was just one of many similar programs, this case was especially interesting since it was seen as a test of the legality of the entire FastTrack protocol. If the record labels could prove that Grokster could be held responsible for infringement of its users, Its fate would be identical to the one of Napster four years earlier. And if Grokster fell, all the other software companies would probably follow. So how did Zenstrom and Fries hope to avoid the same fate suffered by Napster? Well, the answer to this question is a perfect example of how legal considerations affect the development of technology, no less than engineering considerations. Let's look back at Napster's protocol. As I told you in part one of this two-part series, I recruited a few listeners to help me demonstrate the technological explanations. Napster's protocol had two roles, the users, the personal devices at home, And Napster's server. Hi. The server hosted a list of all the songs that different users stored on their computers. User A that was interested in a particular song sent a query to the server including the song's title. And if the server located the song on its list, yeah. it sent user A the contact information of user B who had the song. Now, user A communicated directly with user B, and the two exchanged files. <laughs> Remember, the fact that Napster hosted the list that contained all the songs 
turned out to be their downfall, since the court ruled that Napster had the theoretical and practical capability to prevent infringements. Zenstrom and Friss, like anyone who followed Napster's case, made sure not to repeat Napster's error. That is why FastRack protocol did not include a central server at all. With no central server to hold any sort of information, there was no single party to blame, at least in theory, for the user's copyright infringements. But having said that, an obvious question arises. If there's no central list of files, how would users know which files exist on each other's computers? How could file searchers and file holders find each other? FastRack's solution was to replace the central server with a network of thousands of interim computers known as supernodes. How does it work? Well, Napster's protocol had two roles, the user and the server. FastRack also has two roles, regular users hey! and users who were upgraded and became supernodes. Aye. Aye. The supernodes received their distinguished title if they had a fast internet connection. Imagine a crowd at a football stadium, where some of the people that happen to be tall and strong receive yellow vests and hats and now are both watching the game and ushering. In other words, the supernodes are both sharing files just like any other user, but in addition they are responsible for creating connections between users. Let's assume, for example, that user A, a regular user, is searching for a certain file. It contacts the nearest supernode and sends a query with the name of the song. The supernode holds a list of files, but only the files of users near it. So it knows what's happening on its side of the stadium, but has no idea what is happening on the other side. It scans the list and searches for the song, but cannot find it. It then refers the query to another supernode. The second supernode scans its list, and if the file cannot be found, this supernode 2 refers the query to the next supernode, and so on and so on. Eventually, a supernode will locate the song on its list. Yeah. But he doesn't know user A, who sits on the other side of the stadium, so he answers to the supernode that sent him the query, and that supernode sends the query back to the supernode that sent it, yeah, and so yeah, on. Until the answer finds its way back to the first supernode, and it communicates with user A. Now, knowing the IP address of the user that holds the desired file, user A contacts user B and they exchange the file. <laughs> this elegant solution removed any direct responsibility from the operators of Kazaa and the other software companies since they had no control over the supernodes. The supernodes usher on their own completely independently. They communicate with each other and their users. There is no main server that knows what happens with the network at any given moment. Users could exchange, for example, a copyright protected file of a Metallica song or a perfectly legal copy of the Bible and no one would know any better. 
This was Grokster's lawyer's main argument when they were served a suit by the record labels. Since FastTrack doesn't have a main server, but an amorphous and independent network of supernodes, no one, not even Grokster's employees, was able to tell which files were being shared and when they were being shared. Imagine a new highway. Does anybody at the police station know exactly which vehicles drive on it? Of course not. Are the people who built the highway responsible for the driver's behavior? For example, like driving drunk? Nah, that's silly. Exactly. And this was the analogy that Grokster's lawyers used in court. And this is exactly the Betamax protection we mentioned in the last episode. Grokster supplies the technology, but has no control over the actions of its users. The judge agreed with this argument and ruled in favor of Grokster. The record labels appealed and lost that as well. But then the case was brought in front of the Supreme Court, and there the outcome was completely different. To help us navigate the murky waters of the copyright law, we asked a friend of the podcast, Brent Bendistas of the Citizen's Guide to the Supreme Court podcast, to walk us through the legal decision. Grokster won at the initial two levels, right? And they won on summary judgment, meaning that the court didn't have a full record, they didn't have a full trial, and they were just saying, based on the law, you win, and that's it. We're just moving it along. It gets to the Supreme Court, and it's it's overturned 9-0, meaning that every single justice agreed that that decision should be overruled. And if you look at it outcome-dependent, all they've really said is that Grokster should not have won. We need like a fuller record to determine what is actually happening here. In other words, they are sending the case back down to the lower court, saying it should investigate the lawsuit deeper and find out all the facts. But the Supreme Court does more than that. The primary decision that the court really holds, and I think what they're dictating in the future, is that a person who distributes a device that allows infringement is liable for acts of third parties. Okay, This court is really saying, you know, it's impractical to go after individuals. And I, and I believe that the background of this case where there was like, a, they always say that there was a gigantic amount of evidence that most people were using this to infringe on copyrights. Um, that they are really looking at it and they're saying that by being the person who creates the device, that you actually have a liability just bar none, right? Like they're really looking at this and they're saying the majority opinion says if you create the device, you're liable for how people use it. They don't make a big knowledge analysis, but they basically say that you weren't entitled to win right off the bat and we're sending it back down with this direction that says Grokster should be liable because their product is being used to infringe on copyright. So it's not a matter that they're making a new test, but they're just sort of saying that like the threshold for knowledge here is a lot lower than it was in Napster and that it even was in Sony. Because the majority decision is really dictating this thing that says, hey, this this third party administrator should be liable, it's very strongly inferred that they're probably going to lose once the case goes back down to the lower level. In essence, the Supreme Court is saying to Grokster, you're not Sony, and this is not Betamax. You know your users infringe on copyrights and cause real damage. And if that's proven in court, you're liable for that damage. As Brett says, Rockster realized that it was probably going to lose the next legal battle, and it folded. 
In 2005, the company seized all activity. But unlike Napster's case, Grokster's fate had hardly any effect on the world of file sharing. In 2001, when Napster disappeared, its frustrated users had to find other solutions and other technologies to do their file sharing. But in 2005, Grokster was just one of many file sharing alternatives. It's kind of like the difference between hunting an elephant or destroying an anthill. An elephant is a huge animal that can be taken down with a few bullets. It's a lot harder to get rid of many, many ants that quickly spread in all directions. Similarly, Napster was shot once. A lawsuit took down that software. But getting rid of FastTrack and all its various software implementations was a much harder task. Many in the music industry felt that these sorts of lawsuits were becoming irrelevant. Despite the efforts to block file sharing, every year more and more users joined the file sharing networks. So record labels decided to take off the gloves and adopt a much dirtier fighting strategy. A strategy that used a critical security weakness of fast track. Imagine that you're at a store and shopping for a certain item. When you get home, excited to open the box, you realize that the item is missing. Instead of the toaster or TV you just bought, inside the box there's a small dumbbell. It's likely that you would be pretty annoyed and probably wouldn't return to that same store again for future shopping trips. This is exactly what record labels decided to do to Fast Track. In 2002, record labels hired a company named Overpeer. Overpeer developed a technology that allowed spamming file sharing networks with fake and corrupted files. For example, let's say a user downloaded a copy of the movie Mission Impossible. But when he opened the file, he realized that it was, in fact, a copy of Snow White. Or worse, a version of the animated movie where Snow White is... how should we put it? not so innocent. And fake music files turned out to be a collection of static noises or music fragments repeating themselves in a loop every 30 seconds. Very annoying for the end user. It was. Overpeer's spamming was massive. According to media reports, Overpeer flooded file sharing networks with hundreds of millions of files. And at a certain point, about half of all fast track files were corrupted. File sharing was quickly becoming an experience that wasn't very pleasant for users. But how did the record labels ultimately succeed? Well, you be the judge. In 2002, when Overpeer was established, there were 3 million active users in Fast Track. In 2005, three years later, there were 10 million. It's no wonder that in 2006, record labels decided to abandon the overpeer strategy. During all this time, since Napster's disappearance in 2001, the media and technology world continued growing and developing. Each year, millions of new users joined the internet and bandwidth improved, and data storage technologies got better too. These technological improvements made the process of file sharing more effective and efficient and the record label's struggle more irrelevant. It was this new technological world that welcomed the birth of a technology that took file sharing to new heights. BitTorrent. 
BitTorrent's founder was a young programmer named Bram Cohen, who in 2001 worked for Mojo Nation, a company involved in developing a new file-sharing technology for customers who required high levels of security. Cohen was inspired by his work at Mojo Nation and came up with a new file-sharing protocol that was less secure than the one developed at Mojo Nation, but allowed downloading files or uploading them at a high speed. Cohen left his job in order to develop his ideas independently, and in July 2001, he released the first version of BitTorrent. BitTorrent had two new innovations over Napster and FastTrack, and it's due to these ideas that BitTorrent is considered to be the third generation of file sharing. The first innovation is a built-in separation between the mechanism of file discovery and file transfer. In the previous technologies we described, there wasn't any distinction between the way users search for files or discover them and the way the files were being shared from one computer to another. All was done using the same network. Imagine a highway used by all types of vehicles, including sports cars, big trucks, horses, bikes, and so on. Slow vehicles block faster ones, so fast cars are still forced to drive slowly. When it comes to file sharing, queries and other messages related to the mechanism of file discovery slow down the traffic related to the actual transfer of movies, songs, and so on. BitTorrent was built differently. Searching for files took place on the regular internet, using ordinary websites. It is not a part of the file-sharing network itself. All the bandwidth available for the file-sharing network is used for purely file transfer. Following our previous analogy, slow-moving vehicles are forced to use side streets, while fast-moving ones are allowed to use the highway. The other significant innovation was in the way files were being shared. In all the other networks we mentioned, file sharing took place between one user and another. User A Yay! transferred a file to user B. Hi. But the transfer speed between those two users was dictated by the side who had the lowest bandwidth. It's like asking your neighbor to fill a bucket of water for you. It doesn't matter how big your bucket is. If the neighbor has a trickling hose, you'll both be standing by the bucket for several long minutes until it's full. In BitTorrent, a file is being shared by several sources at the same time. If a hundred users have copies of the same file, BitTorrent breaks the file to small pieces so that each one of them sends a different piece. The impact on the file download speed is dramatic. Instead of one trickling hose, now several hoses are pouring water into the bucket at the same time. With all faucets open, the bucket fills more quickly, or in other words, the file downloads faster. This shared download is the reason why file sharing using BitTorrent is faster than anything we described before, especially in cases where the file is a popular one, like a recent film or music album. Bram Cohen used any trick he could think of to convince users to adopt his new technology, including the distribution of his porn collection. 
It was a slow process that took several years, but eventually BitTorrent became the dominant file sharing protocol with more than a billion users. In 2004, Bram Cohen established BitTorrent Inc., a company that develops software and offers services related to the file sharing network he invented. But despite its greatness, even BitTorrent isn't immune from the law. BitTorrent's Achilles heel is its discovery mechanism, which relies on internet websites that store torrent files and use special servers called trackers to facilitate shared downloading among the users. Over the years, record labels and motion picture companies have filed lawsuits against websites and trackers and were able to get some of them shut down. Yet BitTorrent's fate is very different from that of Napster and Grokster. BitTorrent Inc. was never attacked by the media industry. Why is that? Why is BitTorrent treated differently than Napster and FastTrack? Here's Brett. I think there are a few different things that you can sort of bring up here. One, there's a greater influx of federal laws that are sort of touching on the topic, right? So I think that parties are more interested in getting this resolved at a federal statutory level than I think maybe through litigation. So there's one, there's the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, uh, which has been passed, which is actually something where it's criminalizing the production and dissemination of copyright material. But you've also had a few years ago, there was the SOPA, which is the Stop Online Privacy Act. And there was something called like OPEN, which is the Online Protection and Enforcement of Digital Trade Act. So I think for one thing, I think that there is a greater insistence on law enforcement resolving the issue. Um, So you have to wonder whether or not uh, that is uh, a part of it, right? I don't know for sure, but that seems to be at least some kind of influx. The other big thing I think is that whereas Napster and maybe Grokster just the same, sort of like, had this approach of having knowledge and not sort of trying to pull away from it in any way, it seems as though BitTorrent is at least trying to resolve the copyright infringements that's being used with its software. Um, So you have to wonder if, as it's sort of being proactive about stopping that stuff, whether or not they can be held liable. Like, I think they're learning from the old cases. I mean, that's sort of the point of precedent, where it's saying that if Grokster was a company that didn't know, but just allowed everything to happen, and if Napster was something that sort of knew and allowed it to happen, it seems to me like in order the way to beat the initial threshold is to be proactive about stopping copyright infringement by using your product, because I think that gives it more credence under the argument that there are legitimate non-infringing uses. So it might be that the combination of federal laws that more clearly define the rules of the game with BitTorrent Inc.'s proactive approach to copyright protection both lessen the need for lawsuits and court battles. Another possible factor is the growing realization that internet censorship is almost impossible. The website The Pirate Bay is probably the most notable example. The website, which hosts countless movies, TV shows, and music albums, was shut down by Swedish authorities several times already, but unsuccessfully. The Pirate Bay's operators are playing cat and mouse with the police. In 2012, for example, they announced that they intend to place the website's servers on drones. This way, anyone who wants to take down the website would have to do so literally. Another reason for BitTorrent's different fate has to do with the current social and technological climate, which differs a lot from the early 2000s. Back then, file sharing was used mainly for music and movie pirating. 
But nowadays, many companies have discovered other useful uses for that technology, like distributing software updates to their users. Twitter and Facebook, for example, both use BitTorrent as part of their internal communication structure between servers. Even the artists and creators themselves learned to recognize the advantages of distributing content using file-sharing networks, even when the content is protected by copyright. Kelly, have you heard of Breaking Bad? The TV show Breaking Bad? Of course I have. Who hasn't? That's the whole point. Its creator, Vince Gilligan, fully admits that the show's success is partly due to online piracy. It allowed many viewers to enjoy the series, even though they didn't have access to it as part of their cable package. Another person, an executive at Warner Brothers, said that the company uses pirating statistics in order to identify what the public likes and decisions are being made accordingly. Despite everything we've just been talking about, it's really important to note that the argument about the damage caused by file-sharing networks isn't over, not by a long shot. Here, we only spoke about file-sharing technology, but we can't ignore the debate over piracy on the internet in general. Many in the industry claim that piracy causes tremendous damage to artists and those who represent them. Billions of dollars of sales income just going down the drain. Some even say that file-sharing could destroy the music industry altogether and that artists of the future won't be able to make a living off their art. Others claim that the opposite is true. File sharing increases the velocity of exposure to new audiences, and that someone who downloads an album today might purchase a concert ticket tomorrow. The argument of the pros and cons that infringement causes is a complicated one and deserves its own episode. Well, one thing is certain, media companies didn't give up lawsuits against file sharing. They may not attack BitTorrent Inc. directly, but they certainly continue to attack users who share copyright-protected files. One of the weaknesses of the BitTorrent protocol is that it is fairly easy to find the IP address of a user, and if you know an IP address, you can also find out his or hers real-life identity. According to Wikipedia, since 2010, about 200,000 lawsuits were filed against BitTorrent users around the world. As Brett Benedictus of the Citizens' Guide to the Supreme Court podcast says, even though this might seem to be just a drop in the ocean of hundreds of millions of BitTorrent users, it still plays an important role in countering the rise of file sharing. I don't totally know that suing tens of thousands of people is, one, economical, because lawsuits cost money, and they actually probably cost more money than what you're actually preventing from happening. So I think that there is a law of diminishing returns there, where the goal is to sue people to get the message out that, like, hey, we can sue you if we want to. But is it practical that they're going to sue every single person that has bit-torrented Game of Thrones? You know, my guess is no, but in the same token, if you're the one who's doing it, you're running the risk that one day you might get sued. I don't think that suing individual users is going to stop file sharing. But what I think it can do is sort of like what you said, where it prevents the widespread explosion of something, because if you know you can get in trouble for it, there is going to be a certain sect of society that's not going to do it and prevent it from happening. In the same token, there are going to be people who don't care and who are going to run that risk. Um, 
but it it I think it brings like balance to the force for lack of a better term. To sum up, we saw how a relatively tiny technological improvement developed in a weekend by a teenager launched a universe of file sharing and rocked the media world to its core. Record companies, the first to feel its impact, tried to block file sharing, first with lawsuits, then by spamming the file sharing networks. But still, file sharing is going as strong as ever, with BitTorrent leading the so-called third generation of file sharing networks. And the technology is being adopted by mainstream companies as well. What does the future hold for file sharing? Will each generation be more sophisticated, more successful, and more threatening than before? Only time will tell. That's it for this episode. A big thanks to Brett Bendistas from the Citizen's Guide to the Supreme Court podcast. Check out his and Nazim's podcast at cgtsc.wordpress.com. Big thanks also to the dozen or so listeners who helped me with sound effects for this episode and the previous one. We had a blast recording all those silly sounds at the park, and I should definitely do that more often. And lastly... Thanks to Jonathan Fredrickson from New Jersey for updating me on a technical issue with the RSS feed of the site, and to Leo La Almena from Berlin and Helsik from China for some positive comments and Twitter love. Did you notice that? New Jersey, Berlin, China? You know, working on Curious Minds for the past year has been a very interesting experience for me. I've been podcasting for almost 10 years now in Israel, but Curious Minds is different. It's very global in its nature. Many of the listeners are from the US, but at least half of you are from Europe, Asia, Australia, Africa, and the Middle East. That's amazing. A podcaster from Israel and a podcaster from the US talking to listeners from India, Lebanon, and Germany. We're truly living in amazing times. Anyway, keep sending me emails, tweets, and Facebook messages, and tell me where you're listening from. Our website is cmpod.net, and my email address is ran at cmpod.net. R-A-N at cmpod.net. You can find us on Twitter at Curious Minds Pod. Curious Minds is Kelly O'Loughlin, co-host and editor. Neil Sayag is our sound engineer. Danity Moore is our business manager. And me, Ran Levy, co-host and writer. See you again next week. Bye-bye.